Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll begin reading uh, at verse 13 today. Hebrews 6. We'll read 13 through the end of the chapter, but our focus will be verses 13 to 15 today. Hebrews 6, 13 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that as we read your word, and Lord, as we see the promises confirmed to us, Lord, with your oath, that just as you have said, Lord, that we have two unchangeable things, two things that grant to us a surety and a guarantee that all that you have promised to do for those that love you, Lord, that you will not fail in any one of these things, but that you will bring it to completion. Lord, you will fulfill everything that you have promised. And that, Lord, all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray today that you would strengthen our faith, that you would make it immovable and steadfast. Lord, that we would have an anchor for our soul. Lord, knowing that in this life we will be beset with many trials and temptations, many things that seek to unsettle our faith. And yet, we pray that our confidence our conviction, Lord, in your word and in your promises and in your very character and nature, that because it is impossible for you to lie, it is impossible that you will not grant to us the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our soul. And that this confidence might cause us to persevere, to have diligence, Lord, to endure to the very end. So, Lord, build up our faith so that we might overcome this present world, and grant us victory through this faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, the apostle has been urging the Hebrew Christians to diligence. This is his ardent desire that he's expressed for each one of them, right? They have been slow of hearing. They have been sluggish. He wants them now to show the same diligence, right? The Christian life is not one of immediate gratification. God has made many grand promises to his children. But the fulfillment of these promises is often delayed, right? We do not in this present life realize the full enjoyment of the many spiritual blessings that God has in store for those who love him. We must receive them by faith in the word of promise and hold fast to these promises firm until the end. We cannot grow weary, but we must with diligence press on until we receive our inheritance in the life to come. This is why there is the need for endurance, 
for perseverance, for a constancy in the things of God, for us to be faithful to God in this present life while we wait for God to give to us all that He has promised in the life to come. The eternal glory of being in His presence, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is what He's urging here upon the Hebrew Christians and on us as well. In the last section, He reminded them of this call for diligence. The need to wait patiently for God to fulfill his promises was not something that was unique to them, but this has been the call for all of those, for all of the faithful in every generation. The Bible is filled with such examples of righteous men and women who were able to overcome all the hardships, the trials, the sufferings of this life through faith and patience. Righteous men and women who are now the spirits of the righteous made perfect who are no longer subject to evil, to sorrow, to pain, but are now in the presence of the Lord. And what God promised to them, they have received. They no longer hope because their hope has been realized. However, at one time, they were in our situation. They were strangers and aliens on this earth. They had to contend with the flesh. They had a body of weakness. They had to overcome the world and the devil. They had to face sorrows and hardships and trials and tribulations, just as we do. They had to, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. And as it it was with them, so it must be with us. We are now during the time of our testing. We are in the midst of the battle. We are now to work for the Lord, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But there is coming a future rest for the people of God, for all of us to rest from our labors, to rest from the battle, and to be there and to enjoy our inheritance from the Lord. But as long as this life continues, we have not entered fully into that rest. And this is why we must be diligent to attend to the things of God. With endurance, press on until we reach the kingdom of God. And the Lord has given to us a great cloud of witnesses. Many men and women who had a nature like ours, who faced the same obstacles that we face, who had to contend with all of the things that we have to contend. Yet they, through faith and patience, overcame whatever rose up in opposition to the fulfillment of the word of God. And now they are at rest with the Lord. And he called us to be imitators of them. All of the godly found in Scripture are there for our benefit as examples for us to emulate. Abel and Enoch and Noah. We have Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, the judges, David, Solomon, the prophets, the apostles. Any follower of Christ is given in the Bible for us to imitate, to follow in their footsteps. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 to 15, the apostle is going to bring forward one example in particular, the ultimate preeminent example in all of the scriptures of one who through faith and patience inherited the promises, this being Abraham, who is the model or who is the father of the faith, the example that we must follow. So let's turn then to Hebrews 6. We'll begin there in verse 13. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Here, the apostle is seeking to strengthen their faith in the promise of God. Right? Whenever a person is sluggish, whenever he loses his stability, it is always owing to unbelief. 
He does not have full assurance of faith, faith that God has the power to do what he has promised. This is where unbelief comes in. It questions, it calls into doubt the sincerity, the ability of God to fulfill his promises or the goodness of those promises, as if the things of this world are more desirable than the promises that God has made in the Bible. Faith must overcome whatever opposes the promises of God. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When God gives a man his promise, he is guaranteeing that man the fulfillment of what is promised. Faith believes such promises. Though the fulfillment is not yet accomplished, faith rests upon the promises as if those things are already in his possession. Faith takes a present possession of a future reality, right? It already takes possession of the promise, and it does throw through faith an assurance, a conviction that God will do it. It's just a matter of time until he brings it about. It is an assurance and a conviction that God will indeed fulfill his word. And the entirety of the Christian life is a life of faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 says, the righteous will live by his faith. However, in this life, because of the flesh, because of our weaknesses, because of the wiles and temptations of the devil, because of this present world, our faith is constantly under assault. It can be weakened. It can lose its strength and its vigor so that we begin to lose our stability we begin to wane and to question the assurance of those things that we're hoping for. Our conviction becomes lightened of those things that are not yet seen. And whenever this happens, we need to be strengthened. We need to have our faith increased. It needs to be built up. That's what the apostle is doing here. He's seeking to strengthen them by showing how it was that God dealt with Abraham, how it was that God confirmed his promises to Abraham so that his faith became strong. Abraham reached full assurance of hope in the promises of God, and this is what he wants for them, and this is what all of us need as well. Because when we arrive at full assurance of hope, then whatever obstacle there is to our faith, we will overcome that obstacle, just as it was with our father Abraham when he faced the greatest obstacle to the fulfillment of the promises of God, which was the death of his son Isaac. When God called him to sacrifice him there on Mount Moriah, Abraham overcame that obstacle by his faith, by his belief that no matter what happened on that mountain, God was going to fulfill what he had promised him. Even if it necessitated God raising his son from the dead, God would do whatever was necessary. God was not lacking in the power. He would certainly bring it about. And this is the same faith that we need, one that is steadfast, one that is immovable. This is a faith that is an anchor for the soul, so that whatever we face in this life, whatever winds may blow upon us, whatever storms may come into our life, our faith is fixed, it is immovable, and we do not lose our stability and fall over and uh, have all of these doubts and apprehensions concerning the things of God. We will obtain this full assurance of hope in the same manner as Abraham, right? That's what he's putting forward. That's why he is setting him as an example. We need to follow in his footsteps. And we also have an interest in the promises that God made to Abraham. 
For the promises made to Abraham do not concern him alone, but they concern all believers. All believers have an interest in the promise that God gave to Abraham. And since the promise was not merely for Abraham, but for all who walk in his footsteps, then the confirmation of those promises is a confirmation for us as well. When God is swearing to Abraham, who else is he swearing to? He's a swearing to you and me as well. That's why he's bringing him forward as an example of one who through faith and patience inherited the promise. He shows how God strengthened his faith by granting to him great confirmations of his promises. Abraham is the one then to whom the promise was what was made. And he is here given to us as the example. And he is a very fitting example. Though he's not the first believer, we know from Hebrews 11 that Abel, Enoch, Noah, all of them are listed there as men of faith who were true believers. However, Abraham is the man brought forward in Scripture as the preeminent example of a man of faith. We have such a large record of the life of Abraham. And in Abraham, God manifests the life of faith in all of its aspects, in the biblical record of the life of Abraham. And in this way, he is the father of the faith. He is the model of faith that we must imitate in this life. All believers, as it says in Romans 4.12, must follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. And yet here, the Hebrew Christians are being tempted to not follow in the steps of their father Abraham. They're being tempted to forsake Christ, to give up their profession. They are growing weary and losing heart because they're facing a very severe trial of their faith, a harsh testing of their faith, and it is causing them to lose their stability. But this is not the way that Abraham dealt with his trials and tribulations. Abraham had more severe trials. He had even greater difficulties to his faith, yet he did not lose his stability, but rather he persevered. Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. Hebrews 12, 3 to 4. He says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Here, in this passage, he's putting Christ before them as an example. And he's telling them you need to follow Christ's example so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. That is the difficulty. That is the temptation. When we are facing hostility from sinners, we are tempted to grow weary and we're tempted to lose heart, to faint under the difficulty of the trial. And here he's reminding them that your trial hasn't even reached the point of shedding your blood. You're not being physically persecuted because of your faith in Christ. You're being reproached. Your possessions are being plundered. Some of you are being imprisoned, but none of you are yet dying for faith in Christ. You have not yet resisted to this point. You haven't faced the most severe form of trial, yet in your lighter trial, you are already growing weary and you are losing heart. Verses 12 to 13 says, "'Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble.'" And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, 
for him to be telling them to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. It means their hands are weak and their knees are feeble, right? This is what is happening in terms of their faith. Their faith is weak and feeble, but it needs to be strong. It needs to be strengthened. And this is not following in the steps of Abraham. He did not grow weary. He did not lose heart, even when it seemed that the fulfillment of the promise was impossible. He had many obstacles to the promise of God, yet he continued to believe and even grew stronger and stronger in his faith. He, through faith and patience, inherited the promise. Look at Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, 16 to 23. There it tells us that he grew strong in his faith. Even as the years went by, And as an older man, who was 75 when he first received the promise, and his wife was 65, yet before those promises was fulfilled, he was 100 and his wife was 90. Every year that went by, the promise became more impossible. It became more difficult, right? It is hard for a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman to have a child. But it is even more difficult and more impossible and probable for a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to have a child. And yet... Though the circumstances became more difficult, greater and greater, his faith did not weaken, but rather his faith grew stronger and stronger. Romans 4, 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be, according, in, order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written. A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. He, it wasn't that he was putting his head in the sand. He was contemplating his own body. He knew it was as good as dead. He knew of the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And yet in spite of these things, he grew strong in faith. He was not weak in faith, but he grew strong, and he did not waver in his conviction, his confidence that what God had promised him, God would fulfill, even if it required a miracle. And it did require a miracle for God to do such things. This is what we must imitate. Not wavering in unbelief, growing strong in faith, full assurance of hope until the end. And here, these Hebrew Christians are both the physical and the spiritual descendants of Abraham. But the key is the spiritual, right? Having Abraham as one's physical father, that is a great blessing to have, but only if it leads to having him as one's spiritual father. And if he is our father, then we ought to do the deeds of Abraham. As Jesus said in John 8, 39, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. They are Abraham's children in two regards. But are they doing his deeds? Are they following in his footsteps? 
He grew strong in faith. He did not waver in unbelief, but they are growing weary and they are losing heart. This is why he's putting Abraham before them as an example to follow, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to shake off their sluggishness, to strengthen their hands and their knees, and to press on just as Abraham did. He is the example, and what is affirmed is that God made a promise to him. God made a promise to Abraham. The promise of God given to Abraham was a declaration by God to Abraham of God's intention, his purpose and his desire to make Abraham an object of his grace, of his goodness, of his mercy. God's desire and purpose given by a word of promise to bless Abraham with eternal and spiritual blessings, all of which were founded upon and realized in his seed, in a singular offspring that God would bring into the world through Abraham, the promised Christ, who would be the source of eternal salvation for Abraham, and not only for Abraham, but for all of Abraham's spiritual descendants. And this is how we have an interest in the promise made to Abraham, though some aspects of the promise were peculiar to him. God has not promised to bring a physical nation into the world through our descendants. God has not promised to give to us a physical land in the Middle East. God did give these promises to Abraham. But what was the purpose of God giving these things to him? What purpose did they serve? What was the greater end of God bringing this nation into the world through Abraham's physical descendants and God preserving them in this land for over a thousand years? It was all for the purpose of bringing the Christ into the world so that the blessing of the forgiveness of sins might be given not only to Abraham, but to all of us as well. Now, two things that we must understand concerning this promise. First, we must understand that the primary focus of the promise to Abraham was the spiritual blessings founded in Christ. The forgiveness of sins, righteousness, adoption into the family of God, the spirit of God, eternal life, heaven, right? These are the blessings that Abraham was pursuing. These are the things that God gave to him the promises that he inherited. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Did Abraham inherit, has he received spiritual blessings in heavenly places? Absolutely. Where did they come from? Who was the source of his spiritual eternal blessings. It must be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because there is no way any man in the history of the world has ever entered into eternal spiritual blessings apart from Christ. He is the fountain and the source of every spiritual blessing. And this is what Abraham was seeking. Not merely earthly, physical, temporal blessings, he desired, he desired eternal spiritual riches that are found in Christ. Hebrews 11, this is the testimony given by the apostle concerning Abraham. 
and his desires, what he desired and what he longed for, ultimately. Though, of course, he longed for a son, right, a descendant. He longed for Isaac, and he was rejoiced when God gave him Isaac. But all of that was for this greater purpose of bringing the Christ into the world, the eternal and spiritual blessings that are founded upon him. Hebrews eleven thirteen, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They are looking for a heavenly city, a better country than this present world, than the country in which they lived, a spiritual, eternal, a heavenly city. This was the object of their faith. This is what they ultimately desired and longed for. And they saw themselves and they saw what God was doing in their descendants as a part of God's plan to fulfill these things and to bring them about through the coming Messiah. So first, we must understand that the promise to Abraham ultimately, primarily, is in reference to spiritual, eternal, heavenly blessings. Secondly, we must understand that the promise of God given to Abraham and to anyone else always flows from the free, unmerited grace of God. God making this promise to Abraham was an act of sheer divine, sovereign goodness and kindness. It had no regard for the person of Abraham, and it had no regard for the works of Abraham. Abraham did not earn this promise. It was not a reward given to him because of his goodness. Abraham did not distinguish himself from the rest of mankind, and based upon his own deception, then God gave to him the promise. God did not hold a contest with all of the men of the world, and Abraham was the one who triumphed, came out on top, and then this was what God gave to him. Everything realized in the life of Abraham was an act of God's sheer kindness and goodness. The promise had as its source the free grace of God. Who was Abraham? And what was Abraham doing when God God called him? When God made him an object of his grace and mercy. Joshua chapter 24 tells us who Abraham was and what he was doing as well as his father's. Joshua 24, verse 1. says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for their elders of Israel, and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. There he says that their fathers led beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
How is it that a man who served other gods became the father of the faith? How is it that a man who served other gods became the most important ancestor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us there in Joshua 24, Then I took your father Abraham. What made the difference in the life of Abraham? How is it that all of this came about for this person? Because God poured out many blessings upon this man, Abraham. And all of it goes back to God taking Abraham. He took him. God chose him. God converted him. God transformed him by his grace from being an idolater to one who served and worshiped the true and living God. Everything that Abraham received, everything that he became, all of it he received from the grace of God. His blessed state originated in the free grace of God. And this is why it says in Romans 9, 15 to 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on human will or exertion. Did Abraham receiving the promise depend upon Abraham's will? Did it depend upon Abraham's exertion? Did it depend upon Abraham's works? No. What did it depend upon? The grace of God. God choosing him and giving to him his grace. What about the Apostle Paul? Where was he when God called him? When God made him the recipient of the promise. When God bestowed upon him the great blessings of his salvation. When God made him the preeminent one among all of the apostles. What was the Apostle Paul doing when God took him and chose him for this great task? Well, he tells us in Philippians 3.6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Two of the greatest hindrances to faith in Christ were found in this one man. Zealous above all others for righteousness found in the law. Seeking his own salvation through his own works of righteousness. Is that principle not contrary to faith? It's the exact opposite of faith. Him seeking his own salvation by his works of the law. And then, on top of that, actively persecuting the saints of God. Are there any principles more adverse to faith than works-based righteousness and persecution of Christ's church? Hatred for his gospel. And both of those were found in this one man. Yet what happened to him? Just as he did so many years before with Abraham. God took him. God chose him. God converted him. God transformed him by his grace so that he who formerly persecuted the church now was building it up. He became the greatest champion of the church and the greatest preacher of the gospel the world has ever seen. The greatest laborer for the gospel that has ever walked on this earth. And to whom does the glory belong? Well, what does he say himself? His own lips say in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And as it is with Abraham, and as it is with the Apostle Paul, so it is with all of those who are heirs according to the promise. Anyone who receives the promise of salvation, the gift of God, who becomes an heir of eternal life, 
has obtained that promise and those blessings through the grace of God because of God's goodness and God's kindness. This is what it says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Verses 1 to 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourself, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. All based upon his grace, his mercy freely given in Christ. All who receive the blessings of the promise receive it, by the goodness and the grace of God. Name me one blessing, one spiritual blessing that any man has ever received by works. Name me one that a man has earned by his own merit. Name me one that has as its source and foundation the will of man, the righteousness of man, the works of men, the goodness of men. Forgiveness of sins? Did we inherit this by our own works? Justification? No, it's by faith, righteousness, adoption, the Holy Spirit. Did we receive any of these by our own works of the law? It even says in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, he points out this to the Galatians, their foolishness in having begun by the Spirit, now seeking to be perfected by their own works. Galatians 3, 1, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. By the hearing of faith. And that is based upon the grace of God. Everything comes from God by His grace, given according to His purpose. Why would God be gracious to us? Why would God take us and make us the objects of His love, the recipients of His promises, seeing that in our natural state we are so detestable in His sight? This is what we should be marveling at. This is what should cause us to, to even wonder, is, can it even be true? How could something so good, 
How could something so wonderful be true? And yet it is true because God has promised us in his word. We need to be meditating upon these things, thinking about them often. The free grace of God, what God has done for us. I mean, this is the ultimate riches, uh, rag, rags to riches story. We went from the poorhouse, right, to, to the throne, right? This is what God has done for us. And when we think about these things, it should cause our hearts to burn with love for God. And it also rebukes our ingratitude. Because so many times, we complain, we whine, we moan, we become weighed down because of our lot in life. Because the providence of God does not favor us. But no matter what our situation is in terms of providence, our spiritual standing before God cannot change. Right? These things belong to us, and that cannot be taken away from us even if we're thrown in prison even if all of our possessions are taken away from us, even if we have a miserable existence in this world, none of these spiritual blessings can be deprived from us. So the poorest Christian is still richer than any man in the world because we have the riches of Christ. Whether we are rich or poor, young or old, sick or healthy, it doesn't matter. If we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, then we have it better than anyone in this world who is without Christ, who is still dead in their trespasses and sins. Why would we envy them when they are in that condition? So God made a promise to Abraham. And this promise was to make him into a mighty nation. And from that nation to bring the Christ into the world. And then through Christ to grant to Abraham and all of his spiritual offspring the blessings of salvation. And in this way, all the nations of the world will be blessed in Abraham through his seed, who is the Christ. That was the substance of the promise made to him. And when God gave it to Abraham, he confirmed it to him by way of an oath. Notice he says there in verse 14. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now this shows the kindness of the Lord. How it is that God condescends to men for our benefit. God did not swear for his own benefit. God knows his purposes, his intentions. He knows that he's going to bring about everything that he desires to bring about. God is the fountain of all truth. God knows his own character and nature. God knows that he cannot lie and that whatever he has said, he will surely bring it about. God is in no need of an outward pledge to bind him to his word. Because if God does not keep his word, then he is not God. He would cease to be God and that cannot ever be. Yet here, God took an oath. God swore a pledge to Abraham in order to assure Abraham in order to confirm his faith. He condescended to him. Psalm 103, Psalm 103, 13 to 14, tells us that many of the actions of God in his relating to men is because he knows our frame. He knows who we are. And so he meets us in our position. And he helps us in the state of our weakness. Psalm 103, 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. 
right? In terms of trustworthiness, God giving his promise on one occasion is sufficient proof for a man to believe his word. There's no need for it to be repeated. There's no need to confirm it with an oath. For a man to believe God, one announcement is sufficient. Yet God repeated his promise to Abraham multiple times over the course of his life. And God confirmed that promise by taking an oath, by swearing by his own name to Abraham that he would surely bless him. And all of this was not for God's benefit because he needed some reminder. He needed something to bind him so that he would actually keep his word. All of this was for Abraham's sake because the Lord knows Abraham's frame. He knows his weaknesses. He knows that he is but a man of dust. And this is the way he is with us as well. As a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion toward us. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how shaky, how unstable our faith can become. He knows how circumstances and obstacles to the promise can weaken our faith, can rattle our faith so that we become unstable. And so God in his kindness takes us like little children by the hand and leads us onward. He confirms his promise with tokens. He gives us pledges of his faithfulness, of his love, of his kindness, so that our faith will be strong, so that we will have full assurance of hope. And we must understand this, that unbelief, unbelief resides in the flesh of man. Unbelief, which all of us will carry with us in some measure in this life. So long as we have the flesh, unbelief will be there. It will rise up and seek to cause us to doubt and to question the goodness of God, the sincerity of him fulfilling his promises. Unbelief causes us to question the sincerity of God. Unbelief is suspicious of God, that though God has made promises and commanded us to believe such promises, unbelief sows doubt into the mind, into the minds of men, that it is not God's intention and purpose to give us the good things that he has promised, or it calls into question the goodness of these things. Yes, God has said that there are eternal riches, but how can we know that they are that great? How can we know that it's worth losing our present life in order to gain the life to come? How can we know that the eternal riches, the spiritual riches of the life to come are better than the riches and pleasures of this present life? Because we have to take all these based upon what? On God's word. None of us have experienced them. None of us have entered into the full enjoyment of those things. We must receive them simply based upon the word of God. Unbelief is a distrust of God. It calls into question the truth and sincerity of God in the fulfillment of his promises. And the Lord in his kindness repeats these promises, confirms them to us over and over and over again. He swears by himself that we might have confidence, that we might have greater assurance that what he has promised to us, he will certainly accomplish. And in due time, it will be proven that not one of the good promises of God will ever fall to the ground. This is also why we have the history of the saints in the Bible. We have in them testimonies. 
repeated testimonies of the faithfulness of God, that everything he promised to do for them, he confirmed, he brought it about, he accomplished it, so that when we see God doing this over and over and over and over again, it gives us greater confidence that what he did for them, he will do the same thing for us. Abraham, who was the father of the faith, he was in great need of these confirmations. He needed them for the stability, for the strength of his faith. God knew exactly what he needed, and whenever the time called for it, God would come to him and reaffirm him, confirm these things in order to build up his faith. And we are men with a nature like his. And just as Abraham needed such confirmations, so we also need such confirmations. This is why we need to read the word. Constantly be reading the word of God, meditating upon the promises of God. Anyone who thinks that he does not need such confirmations, who thinks that he does not need God to give to him such assurances, does not understand the nature of faith, and he does not understand the pervasiveness of unbelief. He doesn't understand his own weaknesses. He doesn't understand the many deceptions of the devil. The numerous obstacles to faith make the repeated confirmation of God's promises necessary components to diligence and perseverance in the Christian life. And this is why we have the word of God. And everything in there is useful and needful for us. God's not speaking for his own benefit. It's given for us. The word is for our sakes. He provides us with everything we need, both to produce faith in us at our conversion and to preserve faith in us throughout the course of our life. This is what he did for Abraham, and this is what he does for his children. Notice next in verse 14, the promise that God swore to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. If we go back to Genesis 22, Genesis 22, 15 to 19, this is when God gives to him this oath. Up to this point, in chapter 12, 15, and 17, God had repeated the promise. He had assured him of it, but he did not interpose it with an oath until chapter 22. And this was after the greatest trial to his faith that Abraham faced. 22.15 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Here, this is the final confirmation given to Abraham after this great trial of faith, when God called him to sacrifice his son. The death of Isaac presented a great obstacle to the fulfillment of the promise, an insurmountable obstacle. And the only recourse for the faith of Abraham was his trust, his confidence in the promise of God, his faith in the power of God that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. If that's what it took for God to fulfill his word, then that's what God would do. 
And it is upon this testing that God reaffirms the surety of the promise made in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and then finally here in 22, where he adds to the promise his oath as a final seal of its certainty. This was the last time that God spoke to Abraham in this way, guaranteeing to him the certainty of the promise. In his infinite kindness and goodness, God gave to Abraham the greatest assurance possible. There's nothing greater that God can do to affirm this to Abraham than to swear by himself to take an oath on his own name that he would surely bring it about. And this promise was not given for his sake alone. It is also given for ours. When God is swearing to Abraham... He is swearing to his spiritual descendants as well. He is swearing to us to bless us in the same fount of blessing by which Abraham was blessed. And who is this fount of blessing but our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh was descended from Abraham. Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 6 to 8. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, and then verses 15 to 18. There it says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Then verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. There it is the seed of Abraham. And this promise is not only for Abraham, but it is also for all of his spiritual descendants, so that in Abraham all the nations will be blessed. Ultimately, that fulfillment has reference to Christ because there's no other way that the nations can be blessed other than through faith in Christ, other than through the forgiveness of sins that comes through him. He is the fountain of the promises, right? He is the fountain and the promises are the streams that flow to us, namely the removal of the curse of the law which came upon us as because of our sin. And then he brings about a righteousness by which we are made acceptable in the sight of God. And all of these blessings come to us through Christ. Then Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15. It says, And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abraham believed God. Abraham was fully convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Through faith and patience, he obtained the promise. Though in many regards, the promises were unfulfilled in his life. Abraham did not live to see his physical descendants multiply into a great nation. He only saw Isaac 
and he saw Jacob. He saw these two, but he did not see it expand beyond those two. They were pledges to him, but he didn't see them multiply greatly in his day. Abraham did not live to see his physical descendants inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham did not live to see his seed, the Christ, come into the world. He did not live and witness with his own eyes his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. Yet here our apostle testifies that Abraham obtained the promise, meaning that he obtained the spiritual benefits that would be conferred through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The spiritual blessings of salvation. These were obtained by Abraham. The hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, deliverance from the world, the flesh, and the devil, adoption into God's family, the salvation of his soul. All of the benefits of salvation that would be accomplished through his seed, that is through Christ, Abraham waited patiently for those things, and Abraham obtained the promise. And even now, this very moment, where is the soul of Abraham? He is with the Lord. He is now in the presence of the Lord. His faith has been realized. What he hoped for in his life, he now sees. He was looking for a country, for a city, whose builder and maker is God, and he is now in that city, in the presence of the Lord, receiving the outcome of his faith, the salvation of his soul. All that God promised to him which in this life, he saw just the faintest glimmer, the faintest beginning of its fulfillment. Yet every single promise given to Abraham has been fulfilled by the Lord. Not one of them has fallen to the ground. And we know this because we live on the other side of it and we can look back all the way to Abraham and see that every single promise that God gave to him, God has fulfilled that all of the nations would be blessed in him through his descendants. When this man had no children at the time that God made this promise to him. And yet, what do we see from our vantage point? Has God blessed the nations through Abraham? Absolutely he has. And who is a living testimony of this? Each and every one of us. We are the nations. And we have received the blessings of salvation through Abraham through the seed that God brought into the world through Abraham. We are the living proof of the faithfulness of God. So why would we doubt God's promise to us? Every single aspect of the promise made to Abraham, God has fulfilled. So why would we now doubt that God would be unfaithful to us? That he will not give to us what he has sworn. That the riches and the pleasures of the heavenly life are not as good as God says they are. That it would be better to live for this present world than for the life to come. No, we must have faith. We must, through faith and patience, welcome and greet these things, even though we have not entered into the full enjoyment of them. That is what Abraham did. He greeted them from a distance. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, And as it was with Abraham, so it must be with us. We must obtain the promise in the same way as he did. Every single person who enters into the joy of the Lord will do so by having patiently waited, obtaining the promise. 
It is through faith and patience that we must do so. And this is what the apostle is calling us to do. Endurance, perseverance, diligence, a constancy in the things of God. As we go through this life, our faith is going to be tried. It's going to be tested. It can become unstable, will become shaky. There will be obstacles that seem insurmountable to us to the fulfillment of God's promises. But what will faith always do? It will always overcome whatever obstacles rise up against the promise of God because faith trusts God, that what God has promised to do, he will certainly bring it about. And this is why it says in Romans chapter 4, 22, this is in terms of Abraham, in relation to him, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All of this happened not for his sake alone, but for ours also. And what happened to him will happen to us because Christ has been given for us for the same spiritual benefits. So Abraham endured through many tribulations. We must also endure. And God typically does not call us. We, the obstacles that we face will not be as great as the obstacles that Abraham faced. I highly doubt that God will ever call any of us to offer one of our children as a sacrifice to put them to death. But that's what he called Abraham to do. And Abraham was able to overcome that obstacle through his faith and confidence in the promises of God. And this is how we will overcome all the trials and tribulations that we will face to enter into the kingdom of God. So then, let us hold fast. Hold fast, have great confidence and belief that what God has promised to us, in due time, he will surely bring it about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is, you are truth. There is no lie. There is no falsehood in you. Everything that you say, Lord, is true without any mixture of error. Every one of your promises, Lord, that you have made to your people, Lord, we know that you will bring them about. That, Lord, not one of them will fall to the ground. Even those things that seem so impossible, Lord, that seem to us in, insurmountable. That, humanly speaking, Lord, we can't even begin to imagine and fathom how these things would come about. Yet, Lord, we know that what is impossible with men is possible with you. Because you are the God of all power. And that your arm is not so short that it cannot deliver. But your strong and mighty arm is able to deliver your people from all of their enemies, Lord, from all of their adversaries, Lord, from sin and death and from the devil. And that, Lord, if you desire to bestow your blessing upon a man, that there is no one or no thing that is able to keep you from doing so. Lord, we confess that so often, Lord, our faith is weak. Lord, it is shaky, it is unstable. Lord, we have doubts and fears. Lord, we are 
men of, of weakness. Lord, we have a body of weakness. Lord, we cry out, as the apostle did in Romans 7, who will deliver us from this body of death? Lord, we pray that you forgive us of our unbelief. Lord, for how quickly we forget your promises. Lord, how we focus, Lord, upon our present life. Lord, especially when we're facing some hardship, these things overwhelm us. Lord, they cause us to be ungrateful. Lord, to doubt your goodness and your love for us. But Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, increase our faith. Give us a greater confidence in your word and in your promises. Lord, one that is an anchor for our soul, unshakable, Lord, immovable, even when we face the greatest obstacles. Lord, we pray that our joy would not be deprived. Lord, that our comfort and our hope in you, Lord, would not be shaken, but rather we would have an even greater confidence. Lord, just as our father Abraham grew strong in faith, Lord, he did not doubt your promises. He did not weaken in his faith, but he grew strong and he gave glory to you, that he was fully convinced that you were able to do what you had promised. So, Father, we pray that we also would have the same kind of faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater measure of faith. Lord, that we would have it in an even greater degree, so that it does arrive to a full assurance of hope. Lord, that it would be able to overcome all of the obstacles thrown Lord, from our flesh and the world and the devil. Lord, brought to us even by your own providence, Lord, to test us and to try us and to discipline us. Lord, we pray that you would give us victory over all of these things through our faith. So, Lord, build us up. Give us a greater confidence. Lord, help us to resign ourselves to you and to your word. And, Lord, may we never doubt your goodness, your ability to accomplish all that you have promised to your children. And Lord, we pray that you grant to us endurance and perseverance. Lord, we confess as well that everything we have, we have received from you. Lord, there is nothing good that dwells within us that is in our flesh. And whatever has been brought about in our life, in terms of faith, in terms of godliness, in terms of endurance, Lord, all of these things are owing to your grace and mercy given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we give to you all glory and honor. And, Lord, pray that we would never rely upon our flesh or our works, but always rely upon your grace. And, Lord, live the Christian life as a life of faith in your promises. So, Lord, grant to us these great things that we so desperately need. And, Lord, we pray that you might bring about the fulfillment of your word Lord, in our own day and in our own lives. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.